0: This morning's reading, a little bit long, but it is one story, of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people, and numbered them in Telaim, two hundred thousand foot soldiers, and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and set an ambush in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they destroyed utterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag the king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then, Samuel said, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned. But please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gebeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel."
1: Good morning everybody so pretty cheery story, huh? this is, this is good stuff. Um, before we pray I just want to make a, a brief announcement. Um, we've been praying for Church of the canyons and if you're not sure where Church of the Canyons is as you're going 14 south when you see um, uh, in and out it's that's the church on that exit. Uh, a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago I think they had a, a pastoral candidate. They've been without a pastor for about three years. They had a pastoral candidate preach, and then that Sunday afternoon they voted, and they voted overwhelmingly to accept him. His name is Chris Ullman. And so I was really grateful to hear that they finally got a pastor, but he's he's, he's employed at a church in uh, Canada, and he's gotta work out some details, and uh, he hasn't formally accepted the position yet, but the church is ready. And so I just wanna make that announcement so when we pray for them that it's not like praying an announcement, okay? So let's go ahead and, and uh, open in prayer here. Uh, Lord, just thinking right off, since I just made the announcement, uh, Lord, we do pray for Church of the Canyons, and uh, we pray that uh, Chris will be able to work out all the details with immigration and his position at his old church, and Lord, that he is the man that you've called to be a pastor, Church of the Canyons. We pray that uh, that that um, union, that joining together, the uh, uh, putting him on staff, Lord, would be a, a just a great positive step for church of the canyons and that they would uh, once again move forward and uh, i look forward to connecting with chris and and have him uh, participated in our uh, efca cluster group Um, lord we just ask that you would work out all those details for him that you would make it abundantly clear to chris and his family that this is where you're calling him to by just miraculously clearing the road for them so have mercy on Church of the Canyons, on the Almond family, and, and uh, may that all come together for your glory and for the blessing of your church. Likewise, Lord, we wanna pray for other churches here in the Antelope Valley that, um, that are preaching the gospel, the, the Bible-believing churches that are uh, true and faithful to you. Lord, would you work in them this morning, in all of our churches this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you open your word and apply it to people's hearts. We ask that you would be sanctifying many saints Uh, making them more like Jesus every day, and that through the preaching and the singing and the worship and the fellowship and the prayer and all that we do when we gather together, Lord, that you would be stirring in your people and uh, that you would be moving in them. Uh, Does our Lord intend to dwell again with us? He does. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give all of the saints in the Antelope Valley a taste of that this morning. Be with them. Uh, Father, we want to pray for uh, um, Tim Keller, who is going in for uh, chemotherapy again, um, and the way he described it, it's it's pretty intense stuff. So, uh, Lord, we're grateful for the way you have uh, healed him so far, and we pray that you would repeat that again and uh, sustain him and his family. Uh, thank you for the blessing that he's been to me personally and to just the churches in general um, with his insight, and we, we pray that um, that you would be with him in his uh, his weakness and his suffering. Have mercy on him. And, Father, we also think of um the uh, tornadoes that have hit Mississippi and and the the destruction that uh, we see from that Lord we pray that uh, the people who have been affected by that would be met with kindness and compassion that your churches in those areas would rise up and and provide um, materially would provide shelter food but also the love of Jesus Christ and the gospel in the midst of the struggle so Lord would you uh, use even these natural disasters for the furtherance of your gospel for the glory of your name and uh, Lord, I just, I remember again, uh, a weather forecaster in Alabama, or Mississippi, who was tracking the, the, uh, the direction of the tornadoes and stopped in the middle of his, uh, his uh, presentation and just said, Lord Jesus, have mercy on them. What, what a wonderful thing, Lord. I pray that these things are, are your stirring, that people are praying more publicly, that, uh, that prayer would be the beginning of, of revival, that we would see more and more of this happening, not in, in um, pretentious ways or, or out of um, trying to look good before people, but Lord, that you would genuinely be stirring revival in our nation. And, and even through natural disasters and all of these things, Lord, you're, you're working and you're, you're merciful and you're kind. So be glorified, we pray. Be glorified here in, in our church, in our city, in our valley, and in our nation. And uh, Lord, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would be glorified in your word, in our hearts and our minds. We pray in Christ's name, amen. When, um, when I was a young teenager, I read the book, Chariot of the Gods, by Eric von Däniken. And uh, Dr. von Däniken was a astrophysicist. He got involved in Project Blue Book, investigating UFOs for the Air Force. And um, he eventually, I guess, drank the Kool-Aid because he thought that the UFOs were real And uh, this book, Chariot of the Gods, is his uh, presentation of the fact that aliens have visited us in the past. And so the uh, plains of Peru, there's these giant drawings that the the native people put out there. And his book said they couldn't have seen them from where they were. There's no way that they drew them for themselves. Must be aliens. Must have been. And so when he looked at uh, the uh, pyramids, there's no way that the Egyptians could have built these pyramids. It must have been aliens. And the Aztecs, he looked at some of the Aztec art, and some of them looked like spaceships, or looked like people sitting in in a cockpit, and therefore, it must be aliens. And uh, the other one was um, uh, Easter Island, uh, Rapa Nui. These these giant figures that are buried there, they, they couldn't have been done by human beings, they must be aliens. Uh, fortunately, I overcame that. <laughs> That's not the best answer for where these things came from. I think Star Trek delivered me from that because Gene Roddenberry said, aliens didn't build the pyramids, we built the pyramids, people do this. And so uh, that was kind of interesting, but if you put the first picture up, this is the, one of the, um, the picture that I was used to as a teenager of Rapa Nui, the, the statues that are all around Easter Island. And if you look at them, they're just kind of these stoic faces. They're not smiling, they're not frowning, they're just looking out. And originally they would put uh, eyes in these things. They had these kind of um, stones, these whiter stones that they would put. So they had these eyes and they would put a hat on them. And these were supposed to be the guardians of the island. Um, that was all I knew of them. So I thought, well, that, that's what they are, is just those, those stones, those, those stoic faces looking out. But in the 1980s, they finally got permission to begin to do some excavation on Easter Island. And so we are going to put the next one up. What they found is it's not just a head. There's a full body underneath that thing. These were, we were guardians, and the, the myth on the island was that they walked out of the quarries, and they took their spations around the island to protect it. Um, aliens didn't do this. Ancient aliens didn't come and do this. People did this. But what I th- what I find really interesting is those, those looks on their faces as they're staring out to the sea and guarding the island. They, the people would worship these. They would bow down before them. They built uh, fires before them and, and sacrificed to them, and they, they counted on these gods serving them, but their gods were stoic and quiet and just fixed, and all they could see was that face. Um, this morning, as we turn to chapter 15, what we're going to see is is there's a temptation to see God as that kind of stoic face looking out when in reality there's a whole bunch beneath the surface that we can't quite see. And so hopefully this morning we'll we'll bring that out. Um, We're going to look at this because the the message here is that obedience is better than religion. Now when I said previously uh, a couple Sundays ago that that, um, Saul was religious but not spiritual and that religion can get you in trouble, there were some people saying, I don't understand what you mean by religion. Um, This is what I mean by religion, instead of Saul obeying God and doing what he said, he thought, well, I'll do something even better, I'll do the rituals. I'll I'll bring the sacrifice and and I'll do all of these things and that will make God happy. That's that's focusing more on the religion than the spirit. And and as you'll see, this doesn't turn out well. So the story begins with God telling um, uh, Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites. So the Amalekites were one of the nations that were around Israel. Um, They had attacked Israel and denied Israel uh, access to uh, water and provisions as they were traveling towards the promised land. And uh, so God says, now go strike the Amalekites and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Wipe them out. The time of judgment has come upon them. And so Saul summoned the people. He gets a rather large army. But one of the things he does is he goes to the, the city and he tells the Kenites to leave. So he's, a, he's supposed to attack the Amalekites, but not the Kenites. Who are the Kenites? Well, the Kenites were actually Moses' in-laws. Um, Jethro, the priest, was one of the Kenites. And that's why he says, you showed kindness to Israel. And so you guys get out of there, because we don't want to kill you all when we do this. Um, so what he does is they, they go and they attack the city and they wipe him out, except. That's the dangerous word here. They wipe him out, except he took Agog the king, as hostage. And instead of wiping out uh, ox and sheep, camel and donkey, they took the best. And they're going to bring them. And so what uh, Saul says is that they're going to do this because they want to offer them to God. They, they want to take the best of this and offer it to God. So what's going on here is we're in at the end of the time of Judges, at the beginning of the time of the kings, and so the time of Judges falls right after the conquest of Canaan. When God sent Israel into Canaan, he said, wipe everybody out. There is not to be a soul left alive in the cities. Um, some of the cities were said, you devote them to destruction. Nothing inside that city survives. It is all destroyed. And in some cities, he said, you can, you can take loot from this city, but the people have to die. Um, and so that, that judgment now passes on to Am- Amalek Amalek, and, and the, his people. Um, the Kenites, he, he excuses, and the intention was that everything in the city is to be destroyed. So now in Joshua's time, they did that to Jericho, but when they got to Ai, somebody had kept something from Jericho. And so they were defeated when they got to Ai. So this is, this is something that God is very serious about. When he says destroy, he means destroy utterly everything. Don't hold anything back. And apparently Saul didn't get that memo. He doesn't understand that. Um, so a um, couple of questions. Who are the Amalekites? Well, in Genesis 10, the table of the nations, so this is after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, when the people start spreading out again across the earth they are said to be the, the children of um, Canaan. And it's the, uh, the Amalekites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, all the people in the Promised Land, that's, that's who they are. And then the other question is, why did, keep, why did Saul keep Agag alive? Why, if he's gonna wipe out everybody, why keep the king? What's, what's the benefit of doing that? Um, there is, I, I, I think, now it doesn't say, it just says that he did it, but I think I can infer a little bit here. Um, why would he do that? What do we know of Saul? He's very interested in, I'm going to have, nobody eats until I'm avenged. Uh, It's all about me. Um, And and even at the end of this, you heard him say to Samuel, hey, come up with me so that I'll be honored amongst everybody. He's he's very focused on himself. So he's keeping Agag alive because this shows the prestige of the king. And I get that from the very beginning of the book of Judges. Um, Judah says, I'm going to go up and take the land, and he invites, uh, I think it was Simeon to come with him, and it says, uh, Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick the scraps from under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So this is a, a sign of prestige. I have, as a slave, as a captive, I have a king. That's how important I am. So I think that's why he decided that he'd keep Agog alive. And so the word of the Lord comes to Samuel after this event's over. And God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And in the ESV, it says, Saul, Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. So what was he angry about? Was he angry about Saul? Was he angry about God rejecting Saul? Was he angry about uh, the the probably all of that. There's probably just so much wrapped up in what Samuel is is so upset about, but he cries out to the Lord. And so he gets up and he goes to find Saul. And he gets to, uh, to one place, and, and this is the vanity of Saul. He comes to, uh, to find where Saul was. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Look how great I am. I captured a king. Let's set up a monument to me. I'm kind of a big deal. And so Saul finally, Samuel catches up with Saul and um, just, this is verse 13. Listen to Saul's response, right? Samuel comes walking up and, and Saul is just so pleased. Blessed, to, blessed, be you, um, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done it. I am, I am just the greatest king. I've got a king as a stooge, I've got a monument. We, this is great, this, thing, this, thing, this king thing is really working out for me. Um, Samuel's not so impressed. He says, what then is the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen I hear? What is this noise? If, if you've done what the Lord has commanded, why am I hearing all this noise? What's going on? And Saul says, well, you know, we brought the Amalekites and the people spared, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. We mostly obeyed. We we just about fully obeyed, but we decided to do something a little bit better. Now remember, when when they had a sacrifice before, after Saul says, nobody eats, and they started killing the the, um, livestock on the ground and eating the blood, they, they said, nope, bring it here, kill it on the stone, drain the blood out, and then we'll eat. This sacrifice is, on one hand, this is going to make God so happy. We kept the best-looking livestock for him. We're going to sacrifice him. But they don't burn the entire thing to God. They burn parts of it, and then they have a big feast with the rest. So God wins. We win. This is great for everybody. Why not? Let's. This is the way we're going to do this. This is good. And so he's beginning to make excuses and throwing the people under the bus. And then Saul, Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And I, the way I hear this is I hear... Saul's heart funk speak. Oh, here it comes. I think he's, he's beginning to see something's going on. He says, though you are little in your own eyes, and you have, uh, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission to say, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul has pitched the people under the bus. The people kept it, and, and Samuel's saying, no. The role of the king, the position the king was supposed to be in is, there is no king in Israel. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. You're supposed to restrain the people. That's what's supposed to happen, Saul. Why have you fallen on the prey? Why have you taken it for yourself? And Saul said to Samuel, this is why I said, I think his speak was kind of like in a, a, a downward tone. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He reinstates his position. He's trying to get out of this. He's convicted. He knows that he hasn't obeyed, and he's trying to escape it. And so Samuel responds with a poem. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity and and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king." Saul has already been rejected once, and and God said, I'm I'm searching for a man after my own heart. He repeats it. It, Now it's sure. And now Saul is cut to the heart. I have sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. Now, please pardon my sins and return with me, that I may worship the Lord, that I may bow down before the Lord. And Saul, Samuel says, I'm not going to return with you. But he prevails on him, and and he returns with him. And then Samuel says to him, verse 28, the Lord has torn, right, he turns to go. Saul grabs his robe, and it rips. He, he tears his robe, and so Saul uses this as a, a, an object lesson. Verse 28, and also, um, the lord I'm sorry, verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Don't ask him to change his mind on this. He has made this pronouncement. And then Saul says, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And so, for some reason, Samuel decides to go along with it. And Samuel says, Bring here to me Agog, the king of the Malachites. And Agog came to him cheerfully, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. Here's another real winner of a king his entire nation, his entire people have been wiped out. He alone is alive. And he's like, well, you know, I got off. I got away with it. This is great. So he thinks he's going to come into, you know, Saul's uh, um, party and, and be one of his fledglings. And it's better than death. So, you know, this is great. And Samuel says, as your sword made widow, women childless, so shall your mother be childless among you. And he hacked him to pieces in Gilgal. It didn't go well for Agog. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gilgog, uh, Gibeah, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Saul grieved over, or Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Saul was, up, Saul was upset that, that they demanded a king he was upset that God gave him a king, and now he's upset that Saul is being removed from the king. This is this is more of a human story than it is political manipulation and stuff. Um, so, what are we supposed to get from the story here? What do we what do we do with this? It's 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 pretty dramatic. Um, one of the things that there's a couple of issues that the, the story raises, uh, and they ultimately feed into what is actually the main point. And the main point is is when um, Samuel says, God does not change his mind. And, and the, the heart of the thing is his poem. Obedience is better than sacrifice. If you obey in the first place, then you don't need the sacrifice. So it's better to obey. So these two other issues that come up, they're gonna feed into that. And I'm, this, this is gonna take a minute or two. We're gonna wander away from the point, but I, I promise at the end we'll come right back into it, okay? So one of the first questions is, God told Saul to wipe out all the Amalekites. This is actually the continuation of the conquest of Canaan where God told Israel, go in and kill every man, woman, and child in the land. There are people, typically young adults, who are doing something called deconstructing their faith. And that doesn't mean denying their faith, it means they're going back and they're questioning everything that they've been taught as they were growing up. Is the Bible really inerrant? Is God really always good? Does God really know all? Is he, is he, you know, all of these kind of questions? And as they're deconstructing their faith, one of the common threads that I've seen them stumble on is the conquest of Canaan. How can God, who is supposed to be good and merciful and just, not just endorse, but command a genocide and wipe all of these people about? How can God pull something like that? Is, is he really good if he's going to do something like that? Genocide is not okay. This is one of the questions that the deconstructors are asking. The ex-evangelicals, is what they're called, is, are wrestling with this. And don't dismiss that. I think it's a really important question. It's, it's a pretty large question. Um, and so what I want to do is, I'm not going to answer it because, I mean, it's huge, but I'd like to address it a little bit, put it in a little bit of context, because it feeds into the destruction of the Amalekites. So the problem with Canaan did not start overnight. God didn't just wake up in a bad mood and go, kill them all. There's much more to this story. It starts earlier, much earlier. As a matter of fact, the story of the conquest of Canaan begins right after the flood of Noah. Noah has survived the flood. Him and his sons come out of the ark. It says in chapter 9 that Noah became a man of the earth. He begins to plant and he plants a vineyard. And after he's planted this vineyard, he harvests the grapes, gets drunk, and falls asleep naked in his tent. So much for the most righteous man on earth. What comes next is very troubling. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan, went in and saw his father's nakedness. Now, when I preached Genesis a number of years ago, I said that phrase, saw his father's nakedness, it can mean a number of different things. It just didn't mean he peeked in and saw his dad's backside. It means something more. What Moses is doing by saying he saw his father's nakedness is trying to make it a little bit circumspect and kind of tone it down a little bit. But it was bad. There's about two or three different options of what that means. None of them are good. All of them are really disgusting. So whatever it was, it was horrible. And so when, when Noah wakes up from his wine and he knows what his son has done, he stands up and he pronounces a curse. Canaan is cursed. Wait, time out. Canaan doesn't even exist yet. Why are you cursing Canaan and not Ham? He's the one who did it. Um, I'm not sure, I don't know for sure, but I I think about this for a moment. If he cursed Ham, that's one-third of humanity, because the sons of Noah are gonna spread out and fill the earth. If he curses Ham, then one-third of humanity is gone, is cut off. So what's possible is that Ham had children, and some of his children rejected his, his disgusting, vile ways, except for this line that winds up in Canaan. And so when Canaan comes, Canaan is kind of following in the line of what Ham had done because his other children are not cursed, only Canaan is. So the problem begins right after the flood with Canaan. Canaan is cursed at that point. After uh, after the uh, cursing of Canaan, then comes the Tower of Babel. The nations are spread out. They begin to fill the earth. Then we get to Abraham. And Abraham is uh, called into the land of Canaan to wander around and God makes a covenant with him. And he says in chapter 15 of Genesis, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. All this land that you're wandering on is gonna be for your children, but not yet. They're gonna be in a land that's not their own for 400 years. Why 400 years? Why does he say, he's, he, he tells uh, Abraham, don't ever leave the land, keep wandering around here, but the children that are gonna come, eventually they have to leave the land and they'll be gone for 400 years. He answers that by saying, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. The Amorites are Canaanites. They're part of that picture. They're representative of that that group of of tribes. And so the reason that the the judgment is gonna come is because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. There's a measure and it hasn't reached that yet. So Abraham lives for 175 years Uh, At 80, he has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob lives to a full ripe age. At the end of his life, his son Joseph goes into Egypt, and they all travel with him into Egypt because they don't want to starve to death. The promise to Abraham is now fulfilled. The children are going to be in Egypt. They're there for 400 years. And then after 400 years, God leads them out of Egypt. They wander in the desert for 40 years. This is where they meet the Amalekites. God brings them into the promised land and judgment falls on the promised land and they kill everybody. So is this capricious of God? Is God just being, being grouchy one day? The time from the end of the flood to the conquest of Canaan is around 1,500 years. How much sin did they have to fill up in 1,500 years? I mean, it took a long time. Or I'm sorry, that one is, is about 1,200 years. It took 1,200 years for their sin to reach the full measure in which God was going to judge them. Is he being cruel and capricious and just charging in and and taking them out? He's being patient and kind and waiting. And then the other thing you have to consider when you consider the conquest of the promised land is they didn't stand a chance, man. They were just toast, right? Absolutely not, because they cross the Jordan. They come into the promised land. um, um, Joshua sends spies into Jericho, and when they go into Jericho, they find out that Everybody's heard about everything that's been going on, the, the, what God did in Egypt, what he did with them on the road, how he destroyed kings before them, and everybody's trembling. Everybody's terrified. And how do they respond? Lay down your weapons, man, we don't stand a chance. If they've destroyed all these, no, they're, they're arming for battle except for one prostitute. So in a, a people who are vile, who have disgusting habits, the lowest here, the prostitute is the one who says, we're all terrified of you and i want to be on your side i want to be with yahweh she found repentance she saw what god was doing she saw it coming and she repented and by the way she gets to be david's grandmother and not only david's grandmother jesus great-great-grandmother she winds up in that repentance was possible the other example of repentance didn't go quite as well the Gibeonites. They hear about what's going on, and so instead of coming to Israel and going, hey, dude, we, we totally lay down our arms, we want to make peace, they deceive them. They tricked them into thinking they're from a faraway country when they're actually in the Promised Land. And God still honors the covenant that they made. They, instead of being part of the covenant family, they're forced labor. But he accepted them. He didn't go up, oh, null and void, kill them all anyway. So repentance was possible. It, it was possible to escape this, but the people's heart in Canaan was so hard they would not repent. When they saw it was impossible to win, they still continued to fight. So is God being cruel and mean, or is he opening a possibility? It's, it's possible to repent. That's about 1,200 years from the flood to this. Now we go to the time of the judges, another 400 years, another maybe 50 or 60 with, with uh, Samuel. We're talking about another 500 years on top of that. The Amalekites have been in the land, and the Amalekites saw everything that Jericho saw. They saw all that God had done. On top of that, they got to see the time of the judges when God would bring nations in and punish his people and then miraculously deliver them in just astonishing ways. They heard the story of Samson. They saw what happened, and they still didn't repent. They still stood in opposition. That's why Samuel calls them sinners. So they had an additional 500 years to repent, and they didn't. And so God says, now is the time. Now is the time for it to come. So with the conquest of Canaan, it is difficult and it is ugly. It's not something that we should just clap our hands and go, yay God. It's hard for us to grasp and understand how God could bring that kind of destruction on them. But we do know that God is good and just and right. And if the conquest of Canaan is a problem, I got news for you, it gets worse. Because what's happening now is they, they didn't have prophets going to them and saying, repent and, and God will welcome you in. They had demonstrated before them, this is how powerful God is and you should fear him. Jesus has come, he's died and he's risen again and what has he told us to do? He tells us to go to the nations and make disciples. So his mercy, as much as it was under the conquest of Canaan, it's now multiplied hundreds of fold because he doesn't just expect the nations to repent, he tells us to go and tell them to do that. He says, go make disciples of the nations. And so we are sent out, we're not protecting a homeland, we're scattered amongst the nations, preaching the gospel, saying God has sacrificed his own son to make it possible for repentance to actually happen. Come in, now is the time to come in. And it gets even more magnificent than that because there's a day coming when Jesus is gonna return. The resurrected, physically resurrected Jesus Christ is going to return and stand on this earth. And he's going to reign as the perfect king. And not just him, all of his saints are going to be resurrected and stand with him. And the people of the earth are going to look and see the resurrected Christ and the resurrected saints. And it's going to be a time of peace and prosperity like you can't imagine. Can you imagine the most perfect dictator running the world? Nobody can come and lie to him. He knows their heart. He'll be able to see right through the deception. The earth will be at peace. For the first time probably ever since the fall, the earth will be at peace. There will be prosperity. There won't be a famine in one place and too much food in another place. He will ensure that it's everywhere. There will be absolute perfect justice because he'll rule the nations. That must be it. People must be turning to him in droves at that point, right? At the end of his rule, Satan's released, and the nations revolt. I I just, it blows my mind to think the nation, we are so hard-hearted, we would look at that kind of a situation and go, I don't want it because I'm not in charge. And so they're ready to cast Jesus off. That is mercy upon mercy upon mercy. That is grace upon grace upon grace. What more could God do? And so after the rebellion comes the judgment. And, and it's not pretty. It's not a pleasant one because what's going to happen is the sickle is lowered into the harvest field and the grapes are brought in and put in a wine press and the blood flows to the height of a bridle of a horse for miles. The judgment comes. So if, if the conquest of Canaan looks rough, imagine what that judgment day is going to be like. And, and beyond that, what's even worse than that, it's not just they get killed. They are all raised at the end and God said, Jesus looks at them and he says, goats to the left, sheep to the right. Goats, you're going into everlasting destruction and punishment, sheep come into my father's kingdom. So it's not just death, it is hell for eternity. The point of this is God is not being capricious He's being very long-suffering with Canaan he waited or uh, the Amalekites he waited 1500 years for them to repent we're up to 2000 so far and counting and he's gone beyond and he's extending that that call to repentance he's extending that call to forgiveness he sacrificed his own son to make it possible to be forgiven and people are still hard-hearted he, he is showing over and over and over again he is just to judge the way he does and it's his mercy that he brings us to us. So obedience is better than sacrifice. Now in our context, obedience to Jesus means obeying the gospel. That means trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation. That means laying down your arms. And that's better than sacrifice because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice besides him. So when we look at this this story about the conquest of Canaan and and the destruction of the Amalekites, it can, at first blush, seem very uh, very harsh. But it is really offered as a wake-up call, as a warning. Open your eyes, turn, repent, do it now. Now is the time. God's patience is not gonna last forever. There's a day coming when he will judge the earth. So that's the first difficulty. The second difficulty is really tied into this. We're called to trust in Jesus. How do we know that God won't change his mind and say, well, Jesus, but yeah, I changed my mind. It's Jesus and this. The reason I say that is because the, the scripture we read this morning says that God repented of making Saul king. He regretted doing it. And so he changed. He said, he's not king anymore. I made him king. I'm taking him out. It says it twice, in verse 11 and verse 35, God repented or regretted making Saul king. But that's not all it says, because in verse 29, it says, the glory of Israel will not lie or regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. So he says twice, God regretted, and then he says twice, God can't regret. So this presents a bit of a, a, a theological conundrum. Can God change his mind? Can God repent? Can God regret what he did? And one approach is to say no, and another was to say yes, and both of them are wrong. So I want to read a little bit from uh, Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition. I thought he was very helpful on this. He said, we must keep in mind one of the greatest principles of biblical interpretation. The author was not a complete idiot. He didn't make a mistake and and say, oh, God repented. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. They, They weren't being clumsy. He says, we have no reason other than our own biases to think Verse 29 was inserted late by a later scribe, and no reason to think verse 29 cannot cohere with verses 11 and 35. Clearly, if we're going to be wise, consistent students of the scripture, we have to allow that there is in some sense, or that in some sense, God can regret, or rep- yeah, or God can regret, while in another sense, God would not be God if he did regret. So in other words, what we have to do is, we have to hold these two truths together. And so what you get is some people on one side will say, well, um, God saying he regrets is an anthropomorphism. It's it's an accommodation to us. He doesn't really regret, he just is. And he said it that way so that we'd feel better about it or so we could understand. And then on the other side, there are people who say, well, God says he can't change, but he's talking about his eternal nature and not his mind. And so he can change and he's, he's with us in creation and he's in time and he's figuring out what's going on as it happens. And so he can change. And I want to say that both of them are not equally wrong. I think that the latter is the wronger, wrongest, more wronger than the first one. Um, but I think when it comes to understanding this question of can God repent, we have to hold both of these together. We have to, to, to keep them together. So Dion goes on, he says, God is quite capable of lamenting a state of affairs he himself foreknew and brought about. In other word, In other words, God's regret is not analogous in every way to our regret. This seems to be the point of verse 29 and explicitly ma- is explicitly making. He's not a man that he should regret. God can look back at Saul and say, I'm grieved that he sinned. It's time for another king. While maintaining, I never changed my mind. So how is it that God can regret and not regret at the same time? Um, without it just being, you know, like a, a puppet show or something. Here, the best I can figure this out, the best I can put this is, let's start with who God is the nature, the eternal nature of God. God exists outside of time. He's not bound by time. We can't conceive of that because we only exist in time. So God not only sees the beginning from the end, he is happening at the beginning and the end. He is the God who is and was and is to come. He is timeless. And so he's, he's working in all of time from beginning to end, so none of it can surprise him He's not going, wow, I thought Saul was going to be much better. He exists in the time where Saul's already been judged. And so he is outside of time and he sees it all. And and so he doesn't regret because he's planned it from the very beginning. He knew from the fall in the garden exactly how he was going to bring this story to completion. Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. God is sovereign. He knows it all. He understands it. It all lays out before him. And it's, it's happening according to his perfect and right plan. So then what do we mean when he says he regrets? Well, this timeless, eternal, unchanging God is interacting with us. And we are bound in time. We're stuck in it. We can't imagine when time is not. We, we can't imagine knowing what's gonna happen in the next moment because it hasn't happened yet. And so when God is this eternal God who is unchanging, who is perfect, who knows the beginning from the end, interacts with us in time, what's changing is not him but us. Saul has sinned in space and time. And so God says, not that he eternally is changing your mind, but he's, he's saying from the human experience, from where you're at, I've changed. Something new is happening. I'm rejecting Saul. I put him on the throne, now I'm rejecting him. So from our bound in time experience, he's changed. But he hasn't changed. It's been his plan all along. We're experienced in that way. So that's why he says he can change and he can't change at the same time. Um, We can't change and not change at the same time, but God can because he's much bigger, much farther beyond us. Closest I can get to making an analogy of this is I watched um, a video with Carl Sagan when he did Cosmos, uh, that science program in the 1970s, I think it was, and he was talking about four-dimensional geometry hard to get your head around this one. This, this is going to hurt a little bit. We exist in three dimensions. We can go forward and back, side to side, up and down. That's all we can do. There is, theoretically, a fourth dimension. And I can't point at it, because I don't exist in it. So he says, how can we understand this fourth dimension? Well, let's take it down a step. And he used the example of a two-dimensional plane, flatland. They can go side to side, forward and back, but there's just no up and down. It doesn't exist in this plane. And so these these different people in flatland just exist and they happen and they they bump into each other and they can see just forward and back. A three-dimensional being comes and looks and says, oh, I want to interact with these people. And so it comes down into that plane of existence. What do they experience of this three-dimensional being? Well, it starts, let's say it's a ball that comes down. It starts as a spot and then expands to a circle and then disappears as that ball passes through that flat plane. We can't imagine, they couldn't imagine what it would be like to be up. There is no up. So when we think of God in this way, we can't imagine what it's like for him to be at the beginning and at the end and in the middle and at all points throughout history because we're only in this time. This moment is all we've got. So that's why it can be so confusing to try to think in those terms. And I'm not going to go any further with four-dimensional geometry because it makes my brain hurt. But with God, it doesn't hurt your brain. It's glorious to think, this is the God whose hands I'm in. And so when we, when we ask this question about, can God change, we're called to obedience. We're called, you have to trust in the Lord, obey the gospel, trust in Jesus Christ. And the good news is, God doesn't change. He's not going to say, well, this week, it's trust in Jesus Christ, and you better have enough S and H green stamps, otherwise you're out. He is consistent. But when we look through history, compare how history has unfolded. The fall in the garden, all they get is the seed of the woman is gonna crush the head of the serpent. All they see is Jesus, God takes the, the, the skin off a goat and wraps it around them so that they can have protection as, ex, uh, as they leave the, the uh, garden. With Abraham, Abraham's given the sign of circumcision and said, your, your son, your seed, will be a blessing to the nations. With Moses, we get to Moses and and here's the law. This is what it means to sacrifice, to atone for sin. This is what it looks like to live with God in in cleanliness and perfection. And here's sacrifice to make it clean for you. And then when Jesus comes, all of a sudden all that's gone. The law is, is done. God sets that aside. Is he changing through all of these things? No, he's remaining absolutely consistent. He's moving that story along the lines that he wants to get to. So this is why we can say obedience, in this case, is better than sacrifice. God is consistent. He has always been opposed to sin. He will always be opposed to sin. He has made a way for sin. It has always been by sacrifice. The good news is the sacrifice now is Jesus Christ in our place. He took our sin. So obedience, then, is better than than sacrifice. Don't try to say, I'm not going to obey God, but I'll make it up to him later. There's no later, there's no other sacrifice, this is it. And by the way, judgment is coming. It's on its way. God's patient, he's taking his time, but there's coming a moment when judgment is gonna fall on everyone. In the meantime, because of God's patience and kindness, he's offering repentance. You Amalekites, you have a chance. Are you gonna take it? And they're not. We've been sent on an even more penetrating mission to go and preach the gospel. God's been moving this history towards his appointed end without change, without fluctuation, without variation. He is who he is and he's moving it towards this point. We may experience different phases and different things happening at different ways and different times, but for God, this is one consistent story. And he sacrificed his own son so that judgment doesn't have to be fall on everyone. The good news is we're not told to destroy the nations we're told to disciple them this is one way that god's changed consistently remain the same and and yet the mission has changed so obey because we have the ultimate sacrifice jesus the unfailing path to repentance we, we can't offer sacrifice we don't have the sacrifices better than uh, as is equivalent to obedience. We have the sacrifice done. Now we have left is obey. So this this situation is going to change throughout history. When Jesus returns to the earth and he's the king here, it's going to look different again. But God is being consistent in bringing us to this very perfect place. So here we are at the end of the story of Saul. Well, not really the end, because he's going to hang around, but the end of his kingship, God has now said he's rejected. What we're gonna see next week is he's gonna go find David and say, this is the king. But he doesn't just switch over. It's not like he, he evaporates Saul on the, on the instant. There's this time of transition from Saul to David. And so that's what the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is gonna be. We're gonna go from the imperfect king, the king who's not obedient, the king who wants to be much more religious, who, who thinks religion is better than obedience. And we're gonna slowly transition to the man after God's own heart. And that's what we're looking for because we don't need David. We need David's greater son. That's what we're looking for. That's where we're heading. So let's close in word of prayer. Lord, we're so grateful that our mission is not Saul's mission. We are not called to destroy the Amalekites. Lord, we are called to disciple it is amazing to think, Lord, that your mission now in the world is to make disciples, to send your people out, to scatter them among the nations and call people to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ. And would you cause that faith to happen? Would you demonstrate your mercy and your kindness by bringing many people to the kingdom of Christ? We want to see more, more sheep and fewer goats. And so, Lord, that's, that's only possible because you are acting in space and time. Even though you're outside it. Lord, again, we pray, bring revival to our hearts, to our church, to our valley, and to our whole nation. And would you wake people up again to this this looming threat, this this nation marching toward us, destroying kingdoms that's coming, that Jesus is one day going to come and reign. And so, Lord, be pleased to draw more people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We ask in Christ's name, amen.